I'm going to invite you to have a seat this morning. As you do, I'm going to do two things. Encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and also to dismiss Hubtown Kids. So if you're part of the Hubtown Kids ministry, ages 3 to 5, if you're a teacher or a helper or a kid that wants to go give them some trouble, you can head that way right now. To my left, your right. This morning they're going to be learning about this fact that God is merciful. We've prayed about that this morning. We've, we've recognized the mercy of God amongst his people. So they're going to learn a little bit more about that. As I regularly encourage you to do, I would encourage you, find one of these kids after service and get them to, to, to teach you a little bit of a lesson that might be a better lesson than what you get today. Who knows? Uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, be, be encouraging. If they're in your life group, one of these little guys, ask them about this, this truth that God is merciful. Ask them to teach you a little bit about that. We're going to be jumping back into our series this morning, the series that we, that we began two weeks ago that we tried to continue last week, but the snow really uh, kind of put a, the kibosh on that. How many of you guys have ever just really felt uh, just torn? You know, you really just felt torn, like, man, you, you, want to, you want to stay and you want to go, you want to do this and you want to do that. Um, man, I tell you what, I love snow, but last week I got to thinking, I hate snow. Uh, but I'm really glad that we get this week the best of both worlds. It seems as though we're going to, in, going to be able to enjoy this white snow that reminds us of the love and uh, the, 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 the mercy of God as it washes and covers the earth, uh, but we'll also uh, get to actually hear the Word of God, which does the same thing in an even more effective and, and better way. And so we're, this morning we're going to continue our value series. Last, uh, last time we gathered together, we looked at this idea that we, we are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. If you've been a part of Hagerstown Church or First Baptist Church for a long time or maybe a short time, you probably already know that statement. We, we use it a lot. People helping people find and follow Jesus. If somebody asks you, hey, tell me a little bit about your church, feel free to tell them all the crazy things about how a lot of the people there wear beards. Sometimes the pastor wears bow ties uh, and we have stained glass windows and tell them those things. But first and foremost, I would encourage you to tell them this. We are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. That's part of who we are. But if we were to expand that statement there and to give you some, some markers, some values, say maybe tell me a little bit more about your church. Most churches are like that. They're people helping people find and follow Jesus. But what really sets you apart? What's, what's the distinctives about your church? Well, you could share them with our values. And the values that we're, one of the values that we'll look at this morning, the main value is this, that the word matters here. The word matters here. Here, you probably know this, but there are dozens of Christian denominations represented just in Hagerstown. Dozens of churches, dozens of denominations with slightly different bends and focuses. And you might say, well, why do we have so many denominations? Wouldn't it be better if we just had one denomination? Wouldn't it be a better testimony? And, and I understand the sentiment behind that. But at the same time, I would ask you to, to think about it in a different way. I'd push back and say, I think the fact that there are so many denominations is actually a helpful thing. Why? Well, consider this. Even recently, disagreements in many of the dom denominations have, have ultimately led to denominations separating out and dividing out. You might say, well, why are these different denominations splitting? We consider the Methodist denomination or the Reformed Church in America or even the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 70s. Why are they having these splits? Why are these denominations breaking up? Well, ultimately, it, it comes down to this, their view of the Word of God. To varying degrees, 
Maybe an oversimplification. But the bottom line is, many of these recent splits have come down to the church's view on the Word of God. And speaking to that particular question or issue, we, we present this, that the Word matters here. I remember speaking to a man not that long ago here in Hagerstown, considering as to how we or myself could be involved in serving those who are less fortunate or in need. I began to talk with him. He was a chaplain, and he asked me what church I was a part of and what we believed. And he looked at me and with kind of a smirky smile, kind but also smirky, he said, Oh, you're one of those pastors. You're one of those churches. And spitefully, I thought, but not to play, yes, proudly, I am one of those. We really believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And so we say that it matters here. When we say the Word matters here, remember, we're speaking of the Bible. We're we're speaking of the 66 installments of Holy Scripture, the Old Testament containing the Law and the Prophets, the New Testament containing the Gospels. In the final installment of the canon, it was written close to 2,000 years ago. That's the Bible that we're speaking of. The Bible is widely considered to be the best-selling book of all time, and it has an estimated total sales of over 5 billion copies. Historically, it's been said that the Bible is the most sold book of all time, and it's regularly on various bestseller lists, and it's been translated into more than 1,200 languages. And really, there's like a there's a there's a climbing momentum here in the in the introduction. But I want to kind of stop, and I think it's worth it. I want to say this: it's been translated into over 1,200 languages, and yet there are still many languages that need translations. Still many languages that need the Bible in their tongue. Many people. So one of the prayers that I regularly pray, and I would encourage you, uh, uh, children and teenagers and, uh, and even parents and, and maybe uh, adults to pray over your own life, that God would prepare and even send out of this congregation folks to go and to translate God's word into other languages. If you're a senior and you're writing your thesis and you're thinking, hey, what, uh, I'm about to go to college and do some other things. What could I do with my life? Well, do consider this. Consider Bible translation. It's a great, great ministry. At any rate, the Bible is still considered to be the best-selling book of all time. And I don't, I don't want to assume as we kind of continue this introduction, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room is on the same page when it comes to the Bible. I recognize that there are many people who struggle to trust the Bible. And they're not necessarily uh, trying to be vindictive. They're not trying to cause trouble. They really maybe even want to believe the Bible, but they're really struggling to muster the faith to do so. I want you to know that you're welcome here this morning, and it's my prayer, it has been this week, that our time in this text this morning would encourage you. It would help to give you some of the answers that your heart is looking for. Church, I want to ask that you, if if you're here this morning and you say, well, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, I would encourage you to, to stop, even right now as I'm speaking, and ask God to strengthen your own faith in His Word and Would you ask him to strengthen the faith of those gathered next to you and here in this place as well? But if you are struggling, I want to ask you this, a personal favor. If you're struggling to believe that the Bible is God's word, would you press in? Would you not walk away, but would you press in? Would you continue to dig for the answers? 
Would you continue to to pray for the answers? Would you even engage brothers and sisters here in this church, Christians that call this place their home? Would you press in with them and allow them to walk with you to get the answers to the questions that are burdening your mind and your heart? At any rate, that's that's the introduction. These things are important. We're going to jump into our text this morning. We're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we prepare to read verse 12 and following, I want to say this, that no other passage in the New Testament speaks so succinctly to the nature and work of God's word in salvation and sanctification than this passage right here. In this text, uh, it demonstrates the spiritually transforming power of divine revelation And it's described, and I believe what we're going to be looking at this morning is going to be incredibly beneficial to all of us. Even if you know these things, it's going to be a great reminder. The Apostle Paul, he's really writing a note of encouragement. He's writing a note of instruction to a young pastor that is there in Ephesus. And this man's name is, if you read uh, the, the title at the top of your, uh, your Bible there, it says 2 Timothy. That's, the, that's not the author, that is the recipient. So this young man, Timothy, he's pastoring there in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter first under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first to Timothy, but also to us as well. And he says there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and following, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is that not the state of the world that we find ourselves in? Some of the greatest anxieties that any of us face are, is this, that we fear we are deceived and maybe even fear that we are deceiving others. Reading on. But as for you, Paul says, continue, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we ask this morning again that your word would dwell in our hearts richly. Father, we ask collectively this morning that you would grant us a greater desire for the Bible. Father, would you help us to better understand it? Father, would you cause us to submit to its authority because of its author? Father, would this morning we be nurtured and encouraged and corrected by its sufficiency. Father, this morning as a church, would you cause us to behold its beauty? Father, would we we be awestruck? Jesus, we ask these things simply and confidently in your name and ultimately for your glory. Amen. And so we say that the word matters here. I want to encourage you this morning by reminding you why it matters I want to remind you a little bit from this text how it matters. I want to remind you that the Bible teaches that it itself is authoritative 
And it is sufficient. And that's why we say the word matters here. And so the big idea, the word matters here. The two subpoints that we'll take some time and look at is the, the authority of the word of God and the sufficiency of the word of God. And so there's much to be said about the Bible. The Bible speaks about itself quite often. And here in this passage, we'll learn the most, I think. And so we'll take some time and work through this uh, section expositionally. First, looking at this question why is the Bible authoritative? How is the Bible authoritative? Well, authoritative means this, having or marked by or proceeding from authority. Having authority, marked by authority, or proceeding from authority. I want you to think about this idea of authority just for a moment. You know, I try my best not to tell on my children, and so I will pretend that this is not about my children. But I imagine that most of us Growing up with siblings, did anybody here grow up with siblings? You want to know, oftentimes when instructions have been given to you from a sibling, you want to know, who said? Who said I need to do that? Whose authority is behind that statement? And so in my life, even growing up, we would often ask each other, well, who said? Clean my room? That sounds like something mom would say, but did she say it? Did she say it today? Did she say it to you so that you could relay it to me? I don't think so. And so I will determine not to heed that. Often we come to that conclusion. We ask ourselves, who said? Even in the last two years, we get questions about whether we should wear masks or not wear masks, take the vaccine or not take the vaccine. And in our minds, we're asking the question, even out loud, and many of us boldly on Twitter or Facebook, who said? We want to know, and it's a good question, Ultimately, when we look at the authority of God, we ask the question, who, or we look at the authority of the Bible and we ask the question, who said it? Comes down to this. It's the, the answer is very God said. Verse 16 of our text this morning says that all scripture is breathed out by God. The King James translation says it's given by inspiration. Of God. Both helpful translations. The word inspiration, the word breathed out, the behind that is this word theonoustos. It literally means God's breath. God breathed. And that is what the word of God is. That's what the Bible is. That's why we call it God's word. This morning, this may be too gross for some of us, but it really happened. And so it's worth us investigating. I was speaking with one of our members just a moment ago, and I was chewing on a mint, and as I was talking, I breathed out as I was speaking. I exhaled, and that's how I formed some words, and along with that, there was a little piece of the candy that I was chewing, and it came out as well, and it almost struck this precious member, and yet it didn't. Well, how did that little piece come out of my mouth? Well, it was because it was a look, being traveled along with the very breath of Josh, in a similar way, but a much grander and less disgusting way, God has breathed out his word. We have a copy of it. It's called the Bible. It's been said that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, his voice is heard on every page. This is the truth. Nicholas Kristof, he's a journalist and writer for the New York Times. He interviewed former President Jimmy Carter. In the 
interview, President Carter explained his view on Christianity, and he is a bit of an authority in many ways, in many, in many fields. But it's interesting that when he talked about the Bible, and this isn't a bash President Carter day, but when he talked about the Bible and specific passages in the Bible, he used the word accept. He could personally accept some passages, and he would have to thereby reject other passages. That's a very key indicator of how President Carter defines Christianity and his relationship with the Bible. He speaks of the Bible in terms of parts that he can accept and parts that he cannot accept. The problem with this approach to the Bible is now that President Carter, in his own mind, has become an authority on Scripture, a superior authority than the author of Scripture. It's a dangerous, dangerous place for us to find ourselves in. Former President Jimmy Carter, he may have been qualified for the office of President of the United States, but he is underqualified for the office of God. He, you and me, we have the, the right to pick and choose, but not what we will believe of the Bible. Why? Because the author of the words is superior to ours. And so we don't pick through the scriptures. Why? Because when we do, we're in danger of this very thing that St. Augustine spoke about many, many years ago. He said this, and he said it well. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. I'm going to say that again. It's worth repeating twice. If you believe, thank you. By the way, do you guys know what amen means? It means it's true. If you hear something that's true and you say, well, it's not true because I think it's true. It's true because the Bible says it's true. You can say amen. There we go. If you believe what you like in the gospel and you reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe. It is yourself. And so you see, asking this question, who said? It's a great question. It's a very important question, and children intuitively think of it, and we would do well to retain it in our lives. Who said, if God says it, what should we do? We must believe it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35 says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I was reminded of a, of a truth this morning in Sunday school, listening to our brother Chuck teach about the Edomites. Because of God's curse against them for the way they treated the Israelites, they were completely destroyed from the earth. There's no memory of them, almost to the point where we can't even prove they existed. Why? Because oh, even their words have been erased from the earth. In contrast, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, God says, will not pass away. It doesn't matter as much of what you and I say. It doesn't matter much about what you and I think. But it matters so much greater what God says. And he has, in fact, brothers and sisters, friends, he has said something. And we would do well to submit to its authority. It's ironic, in the midst of the Enlightenment, when deism, the false view that, that God is uninvolved in creation today, although he did create, that thought was spreading rapidly Voltaire, he proclaimed that within 25 years, the Bible will be forgotten and Christianity would be a thing of the past. It's the hipster thing to do. 
right? Everybody was wearing skinny pants, drinking coffee, uh, drinking lots of water, and uh, also talking about how, you know, God is not involved, and that was the, that was the trendy thing to, to believe. And so he says, in 25 years, nobody will even believe this thing anymore. And what's funny is 40 years, it's not funny, but it's more ironic, 40 years after his death in 1778, the Bible and other Christian literature were being printed in the very home that he once owned and lived in. And so as wise a man, smart a man as he was, there's no authority in his words. And heaven and earth will pass away, but God says, my words will not pass away. And I might print them in your home when you're dead. See, the Bible is authoritative because its author is God, and he is the creator of all. And he stands outside of creation, and he speaks his word into time, space, and matter. We are able to read it for ourselves. And so this book, it matters. The word of God, it matters. It's, its content should matter in our life because of the authority of the one who authored it. It's been breathed out by God. It's the very breath of God. And so we do well to read it, to sit under its authority. And so the Bible is authoritative because God is its author and he is our authority. And this applies, by the way, brothers and sisters, to all scripture, as it says in verse 16. It's breathed out by God. And what does that apply to? It applies to all scripture. So the, the writings of the Old Testament, they were referred to by the Jews as Scripture. That's the law and the prophets and the books of poetry. And they were all believed to be the very words of God. And you may be thinking, I know I've thought this many times, you may be thinking that, that, that first century Christians believed only that the Old Testament was Scripture. But that's actually not the case. It's actually not the case. The, the early church, the apostles they believed that there was Scripture even being given in their day and age and that God was even using the apostles to give it to the church. For instance, Peter, in his second letter, he refers to Paul's writings as other Scripture. Oftentimes I'll, I'll say, let me just read this quickly and you don't have to turn there, but I want you to turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Why don't you see what, what the Apostle Peter has to say about Paul's writings that we have in the New Testament today. And by the way, this is not going to be an exhaustive class on, on this morning or, or even a lesson on how we got the Bible. If you're interested in that, I would put a shameless plug in. What are you doing Monday night? What are you doing Wednesday night? Uh, bring, uh, buy a cop copy of Bible Doctrines by Wayne Gruden, and you uh, show up on that day having read the first chapter in the introduction, and you will be, uh, you'll be a lot longer, a lot farther down this road. I think this is helpful for us to see that the Old Testament writings were viewed as Scripture, but so were the New Testament writings, even in the first century. And so you're there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, other, our, our, just as our beloved uh, brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. He's referencing there the wisdom given him is the theonoustos. That's the breath of God as he writes these scriptures. But that's not the only thing we'll see that confirms this point. Verse 16, he says, as he does in all his letter, when he speaks of them in these matters, 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. That's 2 Timothy 3. Those brothers are, or those guys who are deceived and are being deceived. But then it says, there are, some in the, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You see here, Peter is reminding us, he's laying out a foundation for us to understand that the first century Christians, they believed that the Apostle Paul's writings was also Scripture. This is the same word that they would use of the Old Testament that had been completely, uh, definitely established. That was God's word. That was Scripture. He uses the same noun to describe Paul's writings as well. And so first, Christ, uh, first century Christians, they regarded Paul's letters as authoritative. They regarded them as Scripture. And it's important that we approach the Bible in the same way that they did. But more importantly, that we approach the Bible in the same way that the Bible presents itself. That the 66 books that we hold in our hands are the cohesive breath of God. They are his very words written down for our benefit. It's also important for us to understand that, for us to understand, on the flip side, that that Scripture is inspired by God, and not the men are inspired by God. When, when speaking of writing parts of uh, uh, writing from apart from God's revelation, their thoughts, their their wisdom, their understanding, it's it's all part of, and it's all tied up with their human uh, nature and their fallible nature. You see, writers are not inspired in the, same, uh, in the same way that we're speaking of Scripture here. Now, they may be inspired in the sense that they're artistic, right? They've got some kind of a musical genius, or they're an extraordinary uh, literary author. And so in that way, we might say they're inspired. But spiritually speaking, when we think of the Old Testament being inspired by God, breathed out by God, and the New Testament being inspired by God, it's not the author that's inspired, but it is his writing that God is using or, were, or, or speaking through him. A lot of the human authors of Scripture, they wrote other documents, but they are not Scripture. Even if we were to, to discover 3 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians and 10 Corinthians, they needed a lot of addressing from the Apostle Paul. And so maybe those uh, letters exist, but they're not Scripture in the same way that what we have today is Scripture. And so the, the letters that Paul would have written, doubtless, they're godly, they're spiritual, they're insightful, and they're even maybe blessed by the Lord, but they are not Scripture. And more to that point, the, the, the Bible is not a collection of, of wisdom and insights of men, even of godly men. It is explicitly given to us as God's truth. It is given to us as his own words for us. And the psalmist says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, Psalm 119. It goes on to say, that God's word, or teach us that God's word is divinely revealed to men on earth and divinely authenticated in heaven. Peter declares clearly, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But he says this, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If you want to look at that later, that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And so we've made the case, we've seen the case made, we've not made it, we've seen the Bible make a case that the Old and New Testament are both from God. We would not be tempted so easily to believe that the New Testament is not, but we might be tempted to believe that Old Testament is not as helpful for us as the New Testament. 
Maybe you've been tempted to believe that. Maybe you've fallen off the wagon in that way. Maybe this, uh, maybe this week or last week as you were reading through some of Genesis, you thought, well, why? maybe you're reading one of the, the plans. Good for you. And if you are, you might come to the conclusion that maybe this isn't super helpful for me. But even that scripture, the scripture that you don't think is super applicable to you, the Bible says that it is still scripture. It is still breathed out by God. And we're going to see that it is helpful. It is not just helpful, but it is sufficient for life and it is sufficient for godliness. It's necessary for us. And that's why we read the Bible regularly here. Christian, you can power through the Old Testament trusting that even that stuff that you don't think is super profitable, it's not super helpful to you in your mind. It, in fact, is. It's breathed out by God. At any rate, Paul reminds Timothy in verse 15 that it was the Scripture's that had illuminated his mind as it related to salvation. Look at verse 14, back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You might be asking, who is that whom referring to? Well, it's plural. In the Greek, we don't necessarily see it in the English, but in the, in the, in the, in the original language, we can look back through it and say, well, he's speaking of more than one person here. Well, we, can, we know this. He, he's, he surely is including Paul. Paul has discipled Timothy. He's taught him so much, and Timothy, uh, or, uh, Paul has alluded to that many times. But it's more than just Paul. We get a clue as to who Paul is referring to. Who else is tied up in this whom? When we look back at chapter 1, verses 5 and following. Verse 5 in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, it says, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. The whom that... Paul was using speaks not just of Paul himself, but also of Timothy's mother and his precious grandmother. They're included in that. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture painted in just one word this morning there in chapter 3. It's a beautiful example. It's that at the knees of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice that Timothy was led to a saving faith. And how was he led to that saving faith of that genuine godliness? How was he led to that place? Well, through the Old Testament writings that are also able to make you wise to salvation. That's not just, of course, of the old, but it's of the new too. The Bible is the only thing that is able to make you wise unto salvation. And so if you're here this morning wondering if the Bible is able to provide answers for your life, if you're wondering maybe is the Bible able to teach me about God himself, is the Bible able to answer my questions? The answer is a resounding yes. We've seen it at work. Maybe you can even think about your own personal life. If you're a believer this morning, I want you to think about who led you to Christ. Who was it that read the scriptures to you? Who was it that taught you? Perhaps you're just like this brother Timothy. You were maybe led to faith through the word of God by a precious grandmother. Or maybe it was a mother. And maybe it wasn't super explicit. Maybe it was implicit. Maybe it was by their faithful, faithful life. Who knows? I think it's worth us remembering these things. 
And as we do remember them, as we think about how is it that I was brought to saving faith in Christ? Well, no doubt it would be through a faithful Christian and God's powerful word that he has breathed out to us as a message. So the word of God, the Old Testament and the New, it is how you come to faith in Christ. Parents, it's how your children will come to faith in Christ. It's how we'll lead our neighbors and our co-workers to faith in Christ. It's through the scriptures. It's the source of saving truth. The word of God. Spirit uses that in our lives to draw us to faith in Christ. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he asks rhetorically, he says, how shall they, speaking of unbelievers, how shall they hear without a preacher? And later he explains, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the gospel. We present the word by our own witness. God uses that. It's his plan to use that to draw others to himself. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are both authoritative. They're both powerful in our lives. I want you to think about this. God the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his mouth. He spoke you into existence. He he spoke the universe into existence. Then he spoke again and he breathed out the Old and New Testament in a different way and yet consistent with his nature. He's given us that message. The same God who called all things into being has given us his word. With the advent of email and text message, it's, it's, it's rare that we receive letters in the mail aside from bills, advertisements, somebody trying to reach you about your car insurance, your extended warranty or something like that. But in this day and age, we, we don't, it's rare for us to get letters. And, but when you open that mailbox and you see, hey, there's a handwritten letter in there. Somebody took the time to, to communicate with me. Usually it leads a good feeling. Usually it leads us to a place, this is important, probably far more important than that we just printed off the computer and sent out without even a, a real signature. But here, God, the great I am, the one who gives you breath even right now, has given you his word. What a beautiful thing. What a wonderful thing. Let's submit to that authority. To the one this morning that's struggling with with answering the questions about the meaning of life or discovering your own purpose here in this life. And is there any hope for you? Can your sins be uh, removed? Can you be broken? Can you break the chains of addiction? And many other questions. The answers are here in this book. The one who authored your body has authored this book. Today we've grown accustomed to being lied to by those who are in authority. Sadly, many people seem comfortable in addition to that, 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 that there's falsehoods in the Bible. That it too, along with everything else in this life, that it also contains errors. We're tempted to believe that. Maybe you are. But I want you to know that that is against God's character. We believe because he says this about himself that the God who created the universe is capable of writing a book and the God who spoke the universe into existence and wrote a book is incapable of lying. So we look at the word of God and we submit to its authority because we see that a perfect God would give us a perfect book and we would submit to its authority because he is good, his word is good. 
And so we've seen the authority of the word of God. We've just, just looked at the, the, just the top of the stack. We haven't really addressed this question about the sufficiency of the word of God. So he may be an authority for us. His word might be an authority over us, but is it good and is it sufficient? Is it actually helpful? Practically speaking, will it get us from one place to the next? Will it do and accomplish the very thing that needs to be done? Let's turn our attention to that now. Here at Hagerstown Church, we believe that the answer to all of those questions I just listed out is a resounding yes. The Bible is how we learn. The Bible is how we learn about God. It's how we learn about ourselves. It's how we learn about the past. It's how we know about the future. Everything that we do as a church and ultimately what we do as individuals is founded on this book. And that's why we say the word matters here. Not just collectively when we gather. We preach, pray, sing, think the word of God. The words that God gave us, we think them too. That's what we do collectively here. But individually, that's also what should be taking place. We believe it matters. We believe it's sufficient. Scripture teaches us so. And by the way, there's a warning against pragmatism here that I want to just lay out pastorally. I'm about to say that the Bible is sufficient, and I don't want you to think that, okay, I can basically then take that, and Pastor Josh says, because it's sufficient for me, then I can just use sufficiency now as the authority, but that's not the way that it works. Authority, God, said that this is what we need, and so we believe that it is sufficient because that's what he has given us. Additionally, he says explicitly that it is sufficient for us as well. And so we've got to take those two things in order. First, it is given to us by God, and therefore it is good and it is authoritative. Two, it is sufficient because he says it is. Look back at verse 16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And it finally says that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. And of course, this could apply to the man of God and the woman of God. Teaching, it's profitable for that. It's profitable for reproof. What does that even mean? It's profitable for correction and for training in righteousness. Let's take a few moments and look at each one of these. First, this idea that the Bible is, is profitable for teaching. In other words, it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for teaching us what we need to know about God and what we need to know about man. I mentioned a few moments ago about the Bible Doctrines class that's taking place on Monday and Wednesday. If you've not read that book, if you've not read a book like that, if you've not come to a class like that, I really, really would implore you. It's not too late to jump in. It would be incredibly valuable for you. And Pastor Chris, I'm sure, will pour you a cup of coffee on Monday nights if you need it. And I'm sure uh, Miss Amber will do the same on Wednesday night. It's so important that we look at the Word of God and we understand what it is teaching. It is able to teach and it is profitable for teaching. It tells us what we need to know. Now remember, the Bible is is not comprehensive, but it is exhaustive. Or I'm I'm sorry, it's comprehensive, but not exhaustive. It tells us what we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. It's It's able to teach and it's sufficient in that way. And so why does the word matter here? Because without it, we would not know what to believe. There are so many people, there are so many even churches and denominations that have have taken the authority of the word of God and they've really 
removed it from its top tier. And they've replaced it with philosophy. They've replaced it with culture. They've replaced it with personal preferences. And I don't say that to bash them, but to point out the the danger and the idolatry that is part and parcel to that action. To demote the Bible to second place while elevating your own opinion only leads you to darkness. And it's a slippery, slippery slope. The Bible is authoritative and it's efficient. And that is why we must study the word so that we can handle it properly and know how we are to act. When we come to discuss the difficult issues of our day, and there are many... We would do well to search the scriptures first like the Bereans instead of arguing from reason and logic. When it comes to the doctrine of salvation, don't go to philosophy and your own personal preferences first. What has God said? When it it comes to human sexuality, don't go to your own personal antidotes and what you've experienced and what you see in culture first. Go to God first. What has he said? Never mind your experiences Never mind your own formation of philosophy. God has spoken. And what he is teaching is profitable for you. And if there is an understatement in the Bible, there it is. It's more than profitable. Your life depends on it. The Bible teaches us about God and man, redemption, the fall. It teaches us about parenting, marriage, money, management. And it is profitable for us to listen to it. It's profitable for us to dig through it and to receive this instruction. His teachings are not only compatible, or, I'm sorry, are not only good, but they are incompatible with the modern philosophies that are being peddled everywhere we look. And so beware. We really could take a, take a couple hours and park right there to just talk about the in, incompatibility between God's word and human philosophies. I'll leave that to your own, your own time, and we'll move on. So it's profitable for teaching, for telling us what is actually true, so that we're not sifted and, and tossed about to and fro like a wave out in the ocean. We have the anchor, the sure words of doctrine and the word of God. But it's not only profitable for doctrine, it's also profitable for reproof. And that's, that's a bit of an odd word. But really, when you think of reproof, it simply means this, to call something out. To expose something. When James uses the word, uh, or when James speaks of the word of God, he uses the word mirror. It helps us to really understand what we look like, what's out of place, what's wrong in our lives. Imagine getting uh, ready for uh, for church in the morning without even looking in the mirror. Some of you are wondering if I did, and I, I did. I didn't spend too long, but I did look in the mirror quickly before I ran out. It's helpful for us to look in the mirror. That's exactly what the Word of God does. It's a mirror for us. Have you ever spotted something in the mirror that, that had you not spotted, it would really have caused some serious embarrassment? Anybody here? Just quickly raise your hand. This is a safe place. You caught something. Maybe it was a booger. We all get boogers. Maybe it was an eye booger. That's the worst. A hair out of place, not too bad. Lipstick, that's, that's off. Maybe beard lines, that, that's a thing, by the way. Beard people problems. You're so glad that you found that. 
You spotted that in the mirror. That's exactly what the Word of God does, but on a much more important level. It shows us where we're wrong. It, it shows us where we've erred. It, it reveals false doctrine. It reveals hidden pride. It can reveal in our own lives errors about the way that we're parenting or even handling our money. And it, and it doesn't smash us, but it invites us into the light. Hebrews 4.10 says that the Word can pierce and slice as a sword, and it opens up and reveals problems that we have in our own lives. And so it teaches us doctrine. It's profitable for that. It, it, it shows us where we've made mistakes. And if we were to shift illustrations as we think of reproof, as, in, as we translate, uh, transition into uh, understanding this idea of correction, it might be helpful for us to think about a thermometer. You see, reproof is like a thermometer in that it, it demonstrates, it lets you know, it, it indicates that you have a fever. Now, next in verse 16, it says that the Bible is profitable for correction. But to be, to be corrected would require more than just a thermometer. It would require uh, maybe a fever reducer. And I'm not a doctor. We've got some here. I'm not one of them. But I know it would require, after you say, oh, I've got a, I've got a, a, a fever, maybe you need some, uh, a fever reducer, some sort of a, 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 a fever reducer, maybe you need some vitamins, a warm bowl of chicken noodle soup. That's what I would recommend most of the time that, because I'm, not, again, not a doctor. But something that offers reproof does not also offer correction all the time as a thermometer. And yet the Word of God not only offers you reproof and says, this is where you're wrong. I'm shining the light right there in your life. But it's also profitable for correction. So it doesn't just leave us, hey, you are wrong, but it invites us into the right. We see that just as God pointed out our sin through the law, he also offers correction through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the law itself, it, it brings us to a place when we see the righteousness of God revealed through the law that we can't come to, that we can't uh, 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 achieve. We get to that place, we say, well, I'm broken here. I've come as far as I can. I'm still missing the mark. There's still sin in my life. I still committed these things against God, and the law has revealed all those things like a mirror or like a thermometer. I need something else to fix me. I need something else to correct me. And that is exactly what the Word of God does. God, in His grace and in His kindness, doesn't leave us knowing the problem, but He has also given us the solution. The Word of God is profitable not just for reproof, but also for correction. The scriptures inform us of our sin against the holy God. They inform us against our impending doom, but also they inform us of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, and thereby it draws us to repentance. And we see reproof and correction working together as displayed in the Gospels, as displayed throughout all of the scriptures. And so the Bible is profitable for teaching, gives us doctrine, it's profitable for reproof. It shows us where we're wrong. It's profitable for correction. It gets things course corrected and in going in the right direction. But it's also profitable for training and righteousness. For training and righteousness. You might be asking, what exactly is training and righteousness? Well, uh, there's the Greek word for training, it's associated with the word child. And so really what, what I think the, the word of God is trying to, or not trying, but what it's telling us is that, that in the same way that you uh, as a child were raised up and you were taught regularly being corrected, regularly having reproof, regularly uh, given, been given doctrine in, 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 in a physical type of a sense, in a spiritual way, that's what the word of God does for us as well. 
How many times have you had to tell your toddler not to touch that thing or to do this thing? You might think, well, hey, I told you once, shouldn't that be enough? And yet children often need so much more, and spiritually speaking, don't we as well? We've been told once, we've been told twice, and yet still so many of us, all of us gathered this morning as a broken people who had sinned against our God again, and yet we asked for grace. We received it this morning as we walked in because God is faithful. And in a similar way, there's this training in righteousness that the Word of God makes available for us. And really, it's connected with sanctification, which is you being made holy by God. And we know that God has promised, just as he has promised in justification, that our sins would not be counted against us, but that they would be counted against Christ, and Christ's righteousness would be given to us. We also know that in sanctification, that that promise is that he won't leave us, practically speaking, in our sin, but that as we continue to work through his word and the spirit working through uh, that word in our lives and us in the community of saints that we will be sanctified progressively more and more until finally when we are resurrected and we receive glorified bodies and so will we ever be with the Lord. We know there's a promise that he is not going to leave us in the state that he found us but that he will continue to cleanse us. That's part of that training and righteousness. When we think about the sufficiency of Scripture, what it's capable of accomplishing in your life, I want you to know this, that there is a corollary between your time in the Word and your own personal sanctification. Think about that. There is a corollary between your time in the Word and your personal sanctification. And what I'm not saying is you have to accomplish your sanctification. That is not what the Scriptures teach us. But the Scriptures do teach us that the Word of God, used by the Spirit of God in the community of God, will sanctify us. And so there is a connection between the amount of time that you sit under the Word on Sunday mornings, that you sit under the Word weekday mornings, weekday evenings, life groups, discipleship groups, book studies, the more exposure that you and your soul have to the Word of God, the more you thank That's the training in And we say that the Word It's not like, well, it's a good thing to have. It's one of those things that if you don't have it, it's bad. It's not an option. We've got to have the Word. Why? It's like saying you're going to have spaghetti sauce, but you're not going to have any tomatoes. It, you say, well, it matters. That's, that's an understatement. You have to have it. <laughs> Romans 10, verse 17 says this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we've got to have faith. Well, where do we get faith? Well, we get it from the word of Christ. The loving Father, what does he do? He exposes us to his word, and we respond in faith and repentance continues to train us and what we do slowly and but surely we begin to recognize our idols because the word of God has trained us and we cast our idols out and we move on and we see even more idols. We see even more sin in our life and more training and righteousness takes place and we cast out even more idols. We repent of even more sin. Further continues as we're trained in righteousness. We're remade in righteousness, which is our sanctification and he has promised that he will complete it. He'll complete through his word. 
and so that we will be equipped every good work. How does all this happen? By hearing the word. Christ is sufficient, and sisters. So is the Bible. From salvation to sanctification and even, listen, satisfaction. The word of God is sufficient for all of those things. And therefore, we as a church say, here. I want you to get back to the garden, specifically when God, 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God, the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. The breath of life was breathed into Adam. It's interesting. The breath of God given to Adam, he comes to life. Nothing required for life, just God breathing into him. It was sufficient. It was enough. It was all he needed. And now after the fall, the Bible says that we're dead in our sins. The Bible says that we are unable to please God. And yet, in our valley of dry bones, spread throughout, the word of God is preached. The, the, the breath of God is given and it goes out across that valley. And what happens? The very breathed out words of God give life to those dry bones. Brothers and sisters, is this not what we see here in this building right now? We would all have, a, uh, all of those who are in Christ this morning would say, the, the breath of God was breathed on me through the word of God, and it brought life. Is that not what the church is? This idea that the word of God is authoritative, this idea that the word of God is sufficient, those two things is self-proclaimed to help us to understand that the word, Lord, will, the word will continue to matter here. As we close, I'm going to read a passage to you. It's already been read to you once this morning. I want to read it to you again. But this time as I do read it, I, I want to invite you to just think about your own life. It's helpful for you to close your eyes and just to meditate on what you would do that. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The Word of God says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drinkings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I don't know where each of you are at this morning but I know there's probably some that are saying, I wonder if the word of God is true. Is the word of God alive? I pray, as I asked this morning earlier, I, I pray that you would stick around 
you continue to ask questions, that you continue to dig in, that you continue to taste and see that the Lord is good and so is his word. It's more to be desired than gold. But there's also some of you here this morning that you, you believe the word of God is true, but you're just not impressed by it. You look at its beauty, you're not stunned by it as you once were. And it's my prayer this morning for you that as you think about the word of God, as you hear it read, as you meditate it on yourself, that you with the psalmist would declare that it is more to be desired than gold. It's much better than much fine gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Brothers, sisters, friends, the Bible is sufficient. It's authoritative. It matters here. And it's my hope that we together will believe it and that we will behold it, that we'll behold its beauty for ages to come while we wait for the return of our great God and King Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to stand this morning. Father, thank you for your word. We pray by the power of your spirit that we as a church, as your people that have been created by this word, that we would continue to operate out of its authority, under its authority, recognizing its sufficiency. Jesus, we have confidence and faith that your word will not be void, but that it will, in fact, accomplish all that you've desired to accomplish in our lives and here in Hagerstown and in the, in the, in the alleys and in the, the dark places. And Father, all the way around the world, we trust that. Father, make us faithful to Jesus in your name. Amen.